You're rocking with the Griots. What's a Griot? It's a storyteller, a poet, an artist, a culture keeper. Just two success coaches sharing life lessons and offering new perspectives. Celebrating life, love, and self. Ordinary people telling extraordinary stories. We're your hosts, Jamil B. and Keith Marcel, and this is The American Griot. This podcast is for everyone who's ready to stop stuffing themselves into boxes that no longer fit. It's about releasing the burden of Black trauma and embracing creative ways to heal and recharge. You will hear real stories from real people that affirm, inspire, liberate, and restore us. Let's go straight to the floor where veteran Georgia Congressman and civil rights pioneer John Lewis is speaking. Or do you want to keep America moving forward? Mine, dear friends, your vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have to create a more perfect union. Not too long ago, people stood in unmovable lines. They had to pass a so-called literacy test, pay a poll tax. On one occasion, a man was asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap. On another occasion, one was asked to count the jelly beans on a jar, all to keep them from casting their ballot. That was the late and great John Lewis speaking at the 2012 Democratic Convention. He was basically like, listen, what are you going to do? Shoot or dribble? Because we are either going to go back in time or we're going to make the choice to keep pressing forward because we are not there yet. Mama, we did not make it. Now, don't get me wrong. I think he really points to some examples that show that we have made progress, but there is still so much work to do. And we cannot pretend that we are not still in the middle of fighting for not just our lives, but also our full right to vote. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the literacy test and, and poll taxes he mentioned were part of the Jim Crow laws. And I know many of us have heard of them, but they were the collection of state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. Legalized it. They were named after a black minstrel show character and weren't only present in the South. These laws pretty much gutted the enforcement and protection of legal rights all black people received through Reconstruction. And it was kind of meant to marginalize black people by denying them the right to vote, hold jobs, get an education, or have other opportunities. And anyone who attempted to, def- to defy the Jim Crow laws, they often faced arrest, jail mm-hmm. sentences, violence, and we're also familiar with the death, you know? Mm-hmm. Nah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, honestly, that's why I thought it was really interesting, um, the point that he made about it me- being the most powerful nonviolent tool that we have to create a more perfect union. Now, I absolutely agree that the vote is sacred. I absolutely agree that it is a powerful tool to create a more perfect union. But I guess what I'm wondering is, is it really nonviolent, though? I mean, to your point, anyone who, especially black people, but anyone who um, violated those laws or even advocated against them was met with extreme resistance and violence. Yeah, well, I think it's a good point, right? I mean, the actual casting of the vote is a nonviolent act. Mm-hmm. But the power it carries has the potential to threaten whatever the reigning power structure or status quo exists at the time, which basically still exists in many forms today. 
So let's not forget uh, what he said about these barriers happening not so long ago. I think when people think about the civil rights movement, a lot of people think this way um, or other parts of history. It's easy for someone to feel like it's fixed already because it happened so long ago. Mm. Like it's in the past. It's like, oh, that was somebody else's problem, Mm -hmm. not my problem today. Mm -hmm. But Jim Crow laws didn't end until 1968, which was what, like uh, 52 years ago. Right. No, no. So my mom was born in 1956, which means she grew up in segregation. So just think about that for a minute. We're talking about, we're not talking about centuries ago. We're talking about literally one generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm the first um, generation in my family who did not attend legally segregated schools. Yeah. So if you, if, when you're thinking about this and you're listening to this, think about your parents, think about, mm-hmm. you know, your most immediate elder. They were they were living through this time and, you know, they might have been on one side or the other side, but they were part of this and therefore you're connected. Yeah, I think that's really important to, to really just wrap your head around. If you have anyone in your family who is over the age of 50, right, mm-hmm. like it, it's impacting them <laughs> in that way. That's yeah, so, so we, you know, we encourage you maybe go ask them a story about that. What was it like mm. growing up and get some realistic feedback and help paint a picture for you. And during a time like this, when we are less than 30 days out from a historic and critical election and still experiencing new adaptations of voter suppression and disenfranchisement across the board, we want to create a space to remember our collective American story when it comes to voting and particularly through the lens of the black experience and how organizing is a powerful response to trauma and a tool that continues to change history. I mean, look at what's happening right now in our time and, and the protest and the, mm-hmm. the efforts and energy of organization going in and what's the conversations that have erupted globally. Mm-hmm, so we're going to sure. share share a ton of resources to help you navigate that mess and make sure that you're able to make your sacred vote count. In the river, Listen, you can't tell me that anytime you hear that song, you don't think about Radio Raheem in a big boom box. Talk about wake up. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and can I say, can I just say how relevant this still is? Mm. Stay woke. Hashtag, Hashtag stay, stay woke. woke. Not only is the message of the song, but even the context and when it, and why it was created. Because if you remember, Spike Lee created Do the Right Thing in uh, 1989. To chronicle the racial tensions that were still happening in major cities on the heels of recent civil rights wins. And he was recently exposing a lot of the blind spots in America that we that you know we still had when it came to race and the reality mm. of discriminatory discriminatory justice. Yeah, yeah. And um I actually really loved what the group's bass player had to say, Brian Hargrove, mm-hmm. um, about what it really meant. You know, because <clears throat> anytime you hear fight the power. Fight the powers that be. That implicit bias tends to creep in sometimes for some people. Um, and it may have them confused and potentially wanting to write it off as just another mad black song. Yep. And now don't get me wrong, right? Because Spike Lee absolutely wanted this to be an anthem. He wanted to capture the defiance. He wanted to capture the anger and the rhythm of black people. But Hargrove clarified, and he said, uh, law enforcement is necessary. 
As for a species, we haven't really evolved past needing that. Fight the power is not about fighting authority. It's about fighting the abuse of power. And I think that that's really relevant because as we sit today reflecting on why we vote in the first place and the importance of civic engagement, we have to recount the American story, specifically black people's experience with voting in America. And when we do that, we're going to find a lot of abuses of power that we still need to fight. Yeah, but that's why we vote, right? Because mm-hmm. power is institutionalized and perpetuated by the establishment of laws. So an abuse of power is always attached in some way to an abuse of law. Um, so we have to vote to change the law. I mean, that's the most important part, right? And it's not a one-time thing. It's constant. It's ongoing. It's it's going to be a battle for for the rest of your life and then if for everyone after you. And we need to continuously educate ourselves, organize, and advocate so we can stay aware of how power is either being used or misused. Mm. Okay. Okay, then. So let's take a look at that. Let's do a quick fact check and remember the evolution of laws and power um, and how it looks so we can connect the dots. Fact check. Fact check. Well, I mean, there was slavery. Well, there was definitely that. Remember learning about that? <laughs> yeah, there was slavery, uh, 1619 to 1865, and the most obvious and often avoided topic of abuse of law and power. Uh, we don't dig up those roots just yet, but in future episodes, we'll certainly circle back there. It's really important. Mm-hmm. And and even though Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863, it wasn't actually enforced until June 19th, 1865. Hence the reason black people celebrate Juneteenth. I know a lot of people found out about that, like, just last year. But that's a thing, and I'm rooting for it to be a, a federal holiday. Well, because, I mean, it became such a mainstream uh, point of conversation this this past year. I mean, I think we're actually headed in that direction. I sure hope so, because that really is our Freedom Day. Okay, so you have the Emancipation Proclamation. And even though the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, it strategically wrote in a loophole which is still there, by the way. And for more insight on um, the current prison industrial system and its adaptation from slavery, you really ought to check out this Netflix documentary, 13th by Ava DuVernay. I know it's not new, but it is so good. And it really just um, goes into detail about kind of connecting these dots. So I'm not going to dig into that right now. But that loophole, What it did was it allowed um, an exception for crime and convict leasing. So slavery was illegal unless you were convicted of a crime, which meant that states could um, lease prisoners as free labor, which many states still do, by the way. Right. But back then, it also set the stage for states to start creating and enforcing these black codes. Um, We mentioned them earlier. Jim Crow is pretty much the same thing. And essentially, it only affected black people because ironically, white people were exempt from things like the poll tax, the literacy test, because they were grandfathered in just because. Yeah, those clauses, I mean, they... I, I, it's hard to imagine, right, in this particular climate of 2020, how somebody could come across and pass these kinds of laws and, and pass these these amendments that would only benefit a certain people and for mm. people to be okay with that. And I, I obviously can't speak to the state of mind or anything of that time. 
which wasn't that long ago, it, but it wasn't my time. You know, but, but it's just it, how far we've come and where we are today, and it's just so important to speak up and and be paying attention to these things. And I think that's a probably the biggest difference between the times right now, right? Well, I think that's some that's something to be thought about, right? I think that where the mind was then is absolutely different from where the mind is now because we have evolved as humans and changed. But what we're doing with this chronicle, right, because we're going to keep going, is we're going to, you're going to notice a pattern. You're going to notice, like, it's different but kind of the same in a lot of ways, right? There's really nothing new under the sun. It just, things adapt and things change because, uh, but they don't change too much because humans are adverse to change, right? So even though things should change, we are constantly pushing against things changing because we want stability and we want to stay the same. So anyway, I digress. Well, I suppose that we, as we move forward, we continue to get new perspective mm. and that allows us to yeah. move, even take even larger steps as we go forward. So so after, you know, these, these grandfather clauses, um, then there was Reconstruction and that started the same year. The period only lasted for 12 years, ending in 1877. But yes. that was a time the federal government was active and intentional about trying to restore a portion of the rights that were deprived for the previous 300 years. So things like the Freedmen's Bureau were created and the 15th Amendment was passed, giving black men the right to vote. And this was in 1870. True. But remember, those Jim Crow laws were still already in effect. So even though they had the legal right to vote, it wasn't actually protected. And that includes both northern and so southern states. Not to mention the 15th Amendment, it didn't include women. In fact, there were many suffragists who actually fought against the 15th Amendment because it would have given black men the right to vote before white women. So that just means that being pro-suffrage doesn't necessarily equate to being anti-racist. That's true. Um, the, the women's suffrage movement did learn a lot from the organizing tactics of the, uh, the abolition movement and eventually earned the right to vote in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. But let's not forget that even though black women finally received the right to vote, they still had Jim Crow to contend with. Mm -hmm. Jim Crow literally lasted from the time slavery ended until 1965 when the civil rights law was passed. That is 100 years, just to point that out. So organizing and advocacy has been as much as part of our black voting experience in this country as casting the ballot itself. We vote with our feet and our dollars from Jim Crow to civil rights, Me Too, BLM, and black women, like with many social movements, was the backbone of those. Did you know Delta Sigma Theta sorority? I, I think I know somebody in Delta. Ooh, my sorors. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yes, I did know. But what 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 is it? I'm sure I... Let me know. Oh, let me give you some facts about, about your sorority. I'm sure you <laughs> don't know these me. things. Educate me. Did you know that Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated was the only black women's organization that marched in the suffrage march on March 3rd, 1913? It was a lot of marches because it was going down in March when they marched. And I did know. In fact, did you know that that was actually the theme of my first step show when I crossed? And we won that one, of course. It was good. Oh, that's dope. So yeah. you guys got to recreate that kind of uh, it that was, vibe. Yeah, we 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 did a a recreation of the audio. Like I I wrote it as though I was from the perspective of Osceola and um, the founders and 
and my sand saying it was dope. Oh my God. Like I just, I'm getting emotional thinking about all the black women being magical. So good. But yes, anyway. So yeah, I did know. And I think that that's awesome because I think it's really important that we remember um, the parts of our story. Yes, there are absolutely facts that are happening to move against us, right? But there are so many ways that we navigated and persevered. And I just get so inspired by that. Because you did mention the Civil Rights Act of 1965, but you forgot to uh, mention the executive order from Kennedy in 1961. See, that order initiated affirmative action programs to address um, the debates over non-discrimination policies. And that actually started in the 40s. Advocacy groups were getting together saying like, no, this is real and it's affecting us at work. It's affecting us um, outside in the streets, right? The whole civil rights movement, companies are trying to figure out how do we deal with it, right? And so Kennedy put this executive order into place and said that we should have affirmative action policies. But what was interesting is it only applied to government agencies and contractors who had over 25 employees. So if you have less than 25, don't even worry about it. If you look beyond that a little bit, it almost feels like if you're a private company and you're kind of running things yourselves, don't worry about these laws that only apply to larger companies. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, you know the type of work it would take to get to 25 people that you're paying some kind of salary or some kind of money. So, I mean, there's still a lot of of business going on where it's like I could be however I want to be and I could fly under this radar and I can, can, you know, perpetuate this and and move my feelings and my how I feel about race and other people. I can I can Mm. move it forward and not have to worry about being uh, come down on by a law or government. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm glad you brought that up because that leads us right into the present day. So when the Civil Rights Bill passed, the country had won a major victory for itself and its potential to finally get closer to align with the values it claimed in the Constitution. And the bill did a great job protecting our rights to vote without obstruction. That's when society collectively decided they could take a topic of race off the table. Apparently, it had been officially solved and washed away in a tide of colorblindness. And many fell asleep at the wheel when we really should have been listening to Radio Raheem, right? Wake up! (laughs) Because in 2012, the bill was gutted when a landmark decision was made by the U.S. Supreme Court, and they voted in the case between Shelby County versus Holder. That decision basically removed the teeth from the Civil Rights Bill, and no sooner than you can blink, the states start reintroducing these new Jim Crow adaptions to voting rights with things like voter roll purges, Mm -hmm. faulty voting machines, last-minute voting location changes, and and gerrymandering. Mm. Gerrymandering. So that's basically when they redraw the districts, right? Exactly. Yeah. Funny name, right? So so fun fact about that, gerrymandering was named after a man named Elbridge Jerry, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and a future Massachusetts governor. Mm. And he was one of the first people to redraw districts in favor of their party. But in his particular case, when the lines were drawn on the map, they resembled a salamander. <laughs> so when they redrew the maps, it it looked like a salamander. And so he took his name, and I don't know if it was him. I'm not going to claim that I know, but it took uh, Jerry, and they took Mander, and they put it together, and it's called gerrymandering. And it's a very serious thing, Tumil. 
But yeah, no, I I I hate I hate all of it. I hate the name because the name is ridiculous. I hate everything about it. Um, but in all seriousness, though, it, it it's a it's a common strategy, right? It's a very common strategy that was being blocked by the civil rights law. Okay, but in two thousand and twelve, there it, it it hasn't been anymore. And so in the very recent, you know, last decade, um, these, these things are happening again. It's, it's coming back again. And so with gerrymandering, I think it's important that we recognize our state representatives, our state senators, whoever controls the legislator draws the cor- um, congressional districts, okay? And we elect those people. That's why it's really important for us to pay attention so who's on the ballot when we go to vote? Um, because it's not just the president every time, right? Like we have to pay attention to our local elections. Um, and we want to get in the practice of really kind of preparing for that because even though it started way back in 1812, somehow it's here again in 2020. So, you know, you just, there's a pattern here, Keith. There's a pattern here. And I think that's why we did fact check is because ultimately when we look at the pattern, we can recognize a massive and long-held practice of discriminatory laws that hold power in one favor or another. And then following it, you have a burst of laws and activism that is enacted in an attempt to bring balance, right? To promote human dignity and equality. And then we felt like, yes, that's the win. And no sooner than it's the ink dries, are there new roadblocks that emerges that then seem to undercut the intent and they come out in more variations of the same. And we have to keep our head on the swivel because there's a difference between showing gratitude and growth and then getting complacent, assuming that you've arrived, which in a lot of cases... We, we have assumed that we've arrived, and it rests on the idea that there's no more to do. Then we forget that that we're made better by the hard work and enactment of laws designed to do that. You can't gut the law and expect that it will still protect the way it was designed to. Mm-hmm. We have to always be willing to look at ourselves as a country with openness and honesty if we're going to keep um, the, the journey towards healing. Mother, mother, there's too many of you. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. I'm so glad you brought up the need for healing because honestly we do need it um, individually, collectively. And these are just the facts of our story. And we have to believe in the power of Sankofa to go back and get our story, to go back and collect our memories um, as black people and as Americans so that we can see the truth so that we can see who we are, who we say we are, 
and who we want to be. And we have the courage to compare our actions and our results to the ideology that we're teaching ourselves and that we're, you know, subscribing that we have. We have to do this because if we don't, we never give ourselves really the ability to live into who that is. Um, and so I just think, I just think that's, that's really important um, that we do that. These experiences do carry trauma, not just for black people, but as, for Americans as a whole. It's really a legacy of trauma that we carry with us, right? From generation to generation. And the only way to truly heal as individuals and as a whole is to be open with ourselves, mm-hmm. fully open about what we're really dealing with so we can know what to do about it. There's research being done right now by the American Psychological Association exploring how historical and cultural traumas affect survivors' children for generations to come. And we'll make sure to include that link in the show notes. But it's, it's I mean, you think about what's going on in America right now. Uh, regardless of how you feel, there is wrongness about how immigrants are being treated. There's, there's wrongness about how our ICE system, you know, our entire introduction of people into this country, how they're treated, how children and parents are being separated, how families are being separated. And it is a a true fact that in in this, our our current administration has gone on record to say that it is going to be challenging to pair children back with their families because of the lack and, and poor record keeping of the separations. It really talks to the cyclic nature of it all, right? So when we went through the timeline, even though the dates changed, even though the laws changed, the <clears throat> the practices in some ways did not, right? Like the fact that the way you just said it, you know, it made me consider the fact that, yeah, we know a little bit about being separated from our families, right? Whether it was through... Um, the the practice uh, instilled by Willie Lynch, and and that entire methodology that that he taught uh, to to keep uh, in slavery, or whether it was the industrial prison system. I mean, we know about that. We can empathize with that. I think people of color absolutely know about that, and that's part of uh, the shared experience. So when we think about the collective societal trauma and how our responses to it show up in the context of voting, I think it comes out in a few different ways. And all of them really make sense, honestly, because, again, just to reinforce, it's not what's wrong with the person. It's what happened. And what did they make that mean about their ability to continue moving through life, right? Like, that's really all it's about. So, I get it, but I do see it coming out in a few different ways. And I also think that when you can recognize how you are choosing to respond to trauma, whether it's individual or societal, then you get to choose how you want to respond in a way that better serves us and our collective story. So, you know, I think that disengagement is definitely one. Um, You know, if you hear these facts and you think, well, it doesn't matter, it can't matter. I mean, look at everything that we've done. <laughs> how how can it matter if there's a machine working against you, you know? Um, and so I get that, that thought process and that line. But another way to look at it is 
look at everything that's been done and yet we are still here <laughs> and yet we still survive and yet we have not only gained the right to vote without first having it but also kept it and continue to fight for it um you know and it, and it brings up frustration i understand where people will think like well does my vote even count like is it worth it you know what would you say to that keith if someone asked you does my vote count i've had these conversations and i absolutely think it counts i know it does just maybe not in the neat way we were taught it did in elementary school I think it really starts with understanding how the electoral college works because there's a lot of confusion on how the inner workings are and why it's even there. I know we left that out in the, of the timeline, but it was created in 1788, about 77 years before emancipation. So at that point, the country was doing economically well, making tons of money off of slave labor and was like, hey, we need to go ahead and formalize these governments and institutions of power. Let's get so, this paper. Let's get this paper. So the Electoral College was really a compromise that had three goals at the time. First, to protect states' rights to govern themselves. Second, to increase the independence of the executive branch. And third, to use that independence as a loophole that might limit the impact of the popular vote on federal outcomes. And as we've discussed, America loves its loopholes. Yes, it does. But, you know... I think like everything else, once the ancestors learned the system and how to leverage the rules, they were able to make it work for them, which is exactly what we can do. So individual votes absolutely count in local and state and even federal elections, to your point. In local and state elections, though, all you have is the popular vote. So it's really pretty straightforward. But when it comes to federal, that's when the Electoral College comes in. Because the federal government really represents the states. It's actually a way for the states who are casting their vote in those elections, like the presidency, to determine how they should vote. So, you know, that's really kind of what it is, right? Um, I had it actually explained to me like this, and it was really helpful. Imagine we have an election at a high school, and we want to elect a student body president. But instead of doing a direct election, we want to organize every student by homeroom because it's the homerooms that really represent the student's interests. So we give each homeroom an electoral vote. And no matter how big or small the margin is, that homeroom with the most votes will win. So assume that we have three rooms. Now, I know that's a small school, but math, you know what I mean? Give me it. Give me a break. <laughs> you got it. Okay. So say we have three rooms, and in room one, Keith, you get 19 votes, and I get one vote. They was hating on me in room one. Popular. <laughs> in room two, you get nine votes, and I get 11. Room two is doing a little bit better. And three, the same thing. So you get nine votes again, and I get 11. So who wins? I do. Because I actually won two out of the three rooms even though you had more numeric or individual people. That makes sense? It does. Yeah. So hopefully that clears up some of the confusion about how things work um, because ultimately it still does, right? Like it still works, especially when you're dealing with swing states like where we are in Florida, right? So in room, homeroom two and homeroom three, it really mattered because if those two extra people didn't vote, then they could have literally changed the election. So that's, no matter what, your vote absolutely counts, especially 
especially depending on where you are. So for no other reason that it is your right. It is your human right to do and it is powerful. Do it because if it wasn't powerful, it wouldn't be this hard. That's good. Uh, I think that was really good and, and it was a great breakdown. It's it's just to reiterate, you know, the this there's going to be the popular vote and that's your individual vote and then there's going to be the state collective vote and your vote con- contributes to that. Um, but it's in a different way. And I think your explanation really like cleared that up. I think another reaction to trauma is going through the motions. Like you vote out of tradition, but you could stand and deepen the connection with your why. And I can really relate to that because I've never not voted, even when I was super jaded and cynical of the impact it would have. But I don't really prepare before going, like researching the other amendments or roles that were included outside of the presidency. I just kind of boop, 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 <laughs> all the way down. To, uh, right. I'm like, I'm, I'm not here. a Republican. Does not apply. <laughs> Uh, but then I, I go down and, but I know this year and even with this podcast has really caused me to dig a lot deeper and reconnect with my why, which even changes how, how I game plan. I know we've mentioned it a lot. And, um, as we remembered our story, but I definitely think that advocacy and organizing is a powerful response to trauma. I mean, cause it, it really is. It's one that ultimately brings, about healing and restoration. And even though it can feel tiring at times, it does. It is also a release of very, very powerful emotion and very powerful energy that the universe needs. You know, we need it and, and the universe needs it. So um, we have to remember that our choices really have the ability to change the trajectory of things. It actually reminds me of another Public Enemy album. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Because even with the machine that is actively working against us, we still survive. I can't say that enough. We still progress. We have elephant memories, right? Like, and we are part of a continuum that will keep pulling us forward. So last episode, we talked about the 12 practices and tools to recharge. And one of them is social action, which we know pulls us forward. You know, being being present and being part of the problem, but also part of the solution. And intentionally advocating for anti-racist laws and for anti-racist society is actually an act of spiritual healing. And I encourage all of us to find our best way to show up. It could look like community organizing, using your art, your platform, being an ally in a workplace to add to the collective consciousness that requires anti-racist action. There's a difference between passivity and anti-racism. Yep, absolutely. And there's a lot of ways you can educate yourself too. You know, there's workshops. Actually, I'm going to be doing a workshop for Fulbright. So that's really exciting. That is exciting. I'm super, super, super happy ex- for you. Yay. So, I mean, I think that there's so many opportunities now, no matter where you are um, in this, to educate ourselves and to continue to be in the conversation to really show up in a way that feels authentic and, um, and true, you know, to who we are. So uh, speaking of action and having plans, I feel like having a plan to vote is important. Like don't just feel like you're going to show up that day and it's just going to be sweet. Like I, we need a plan. So I have a plan where I'm actually uh, voting by mail. I already got my ballot. And um, I was talking to my girlfriend last night, 
And she said she was voting by mail. I was like, well, did you get your ballot yet? And she was like, no, I didn't get my ballot yet. I was like, okay, so I want you to go to this website. Make sure you're still registered. So that was number one. Make it, we made sure she was still registered. Then I was like, okay, so why hasn't it come yet? Okay, well, then what we can do is if it doesn't come by this date, then you know your early vote dates. When are, you, when are your windows, right? Because if it doesn't, you want to make sure you plan a day that you can go during early vote. You don't want to wait until the actual vote day, right? Because remember those long lines? We're not going to do that. We're not doing this. Mask on. Hand sanitizers are ready. Bring your own pen, right? Like whatever it is, just have a plan. <laughs> What's your plan, Keith? My plan is to do everything the opposite of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a day I'm a day of voter and it's I don't know where I get this um excitement about it from. I mean, my dad mentioned it in episode 1 about a memory he shared of taking me voting and maybe that's it. I don't know, but it's it's something about going there the day and and being part of it that excites me. But I know that it's different for everybody. Some people want to get it in and make sure that it's it's done early and they don't want to deal with it. And I like to I like to go. And I just I have to say I've been lucky. Uh, I bit dodge bullets every two years to not have to deal with lines. So I'm hoping that's the case this year. But uh, even if there is one, I'm going to I'm going to ride it out. But I have been you know, everybody's been getting spammed. I don't think I'm a stranger to that. We've been getting spammed with these text messages and emails about voter registration and getting to vote. But I did finally pick up the phone for one spam caller, and it was this random girl named Bree. And she <laughs> hey, Bree. said, yeah, I was like, hey, Bree, what's up? And she, was, she was like, hey, Keith. I'm like, how you know my name? She's like, I got all how your you information. I found you, Keith? <laughs> and she was like, well, you know, you're gonna, are you going to vote early? And I said, no, I'm going on uh, election day. And she said, well, you can still download your ballot and do your research. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And she shared a great resource with me, a website where I can learn all about my um, uh, everybody down ballot. And we're going to put that in the show notes for you. And I definitely encourage you to go on that website, put your, your city and state in and go ahead and learn about who's on your ballot. And so you can figure out how you want to vote and who you're going to vote for. Because even within a party, there's still multiple people and you might have options there that you didn't you didn't even think about. So so. Go ahead and look at the show notes. Make sure you take a look at that and and figure out exactly what your plan is going to be and, and and your plan for voting, not only just showing up, but how are you going to, to pencil in or pin in your results there? Yeah, no. And I'm going to tell you this. You better make sure you take that day off, okay, because all I'm saying is have the memories. It's going to be great. You're not going to have a line or anything. But like you said, you got to stick it out. So just be prepared, you know, just take off the day and celebrate that moment and be ready. Just be ready. I know this episode had a ton of information. Uh, hopefully, you know, it was a good little walk through the past to remember kind of where we've come and where we're going and how we're going to continue moving forward. But definitely, if this was helpful, if there was something new, maybe that you learned that you didn't know, share this. Pass it along and find five other people who you want to make sure they have access to their full right to vote. Share it with them. Hey, Griots. We want to thank you so much for sharing space with us. If you enjoyed this podcast or heard something you liked, 
pay it forward and pass it along to someone else. We're making more episodes that celebrate our stories, so support us. Go to your preferred podcast app, rate us, and subscribe. You can also follow us on IG at The American Grill or visit the website at theamericangrill.com to get resources from the show notes or leave a comment or question on the episode. Until next time, be inspired and be on purpose. And remember to live in the now because nothing lasts forever. <laughs>